So really what's useful in meditation or in practice is to find enough support in enough parts of our life that our minds can begin to focus, that our lives can begin to move in a direction that is congruent with ease and and uh, where we're not feeling anxious or confused or frustrated or beside ourselves with a kind of internal turmoil, all those kinds of things. And so in the in the way that the Buddhist teachings have been laid out, there's a lot of support that helps create the foundations that makes it possible to apply attention in different parts of one's life. So it was very um, common that the Buddha laid out a gradual path. He didn't usually start with meditation instructions. He usually started with instructions on the importance of generosity. Because, you know, generosity, what it does is it it cuts through um, critical mind, it cuts through um, the mind that wants to hold, it cuts through the sense that, you know, I'm the center of the universe, and it begins to let us look and see that we're actually in a fabric of relatedness, and when we give material possessions our time, when we give by listening, when we give money, then we are shifting those dynamics, and that then gives us access to our own innate goodness, and that innate goodness then allows us to have the strength to get some leverage on some of the things that we experience. So Dhamma creates a foundation that then makes it possible for us to practice with integrity. And in the framework of the Buddhist teaching, the integrity is is referred to frequently is, is to do with not killing or taking the life of any living being and not stealing or taking things that are not given, not engaged in sexual misconduct, not engaged in speech which is divisive or harsh or um, belittling or slandering or even useless, and not engaged in alcohol or drugs or intoxicants which then not only confuse and cloud the mind but just make it impossible to keep any of the other precepts. So when we look at the first precept of refraining from causing any harm, in our contemporary society, it's quite a bit different than the way it was at the time of the Buddha. You know, I was having a conversation with Sharon about, you know, what constitutes right speech with regard to texts and with regards to Facebook posts and with regards to, you know, stuff like that. And it's like, you know, the Buddha didn't have Facebook, you know. They didn't even have books, you know. So this whole kind of thing of, like, what's going on in contemporary world with social media and texting and all the rest of that is a is a different um, level of, of looking at both right speech and what's harmful and harmless. And so we've got to take these principles and then apply them in the way that actually makes sense for us in terms of, you know, how does this work? When we have a sense of generosity, when we have a sense that our life is committed to doing acts of kindness and generosity for ourselves and for other people, 
that gives us stable ground to be able to keep the precepts. And when we keep the precepts, that gives us stable ground for being able to work with what's going on in our minds. And when we're working with what's going on in our minds, one of the things that we experience is, is the hindrances. So when we're looking at the hindrances, the hindrances are um, anger or lust or desire, doubt, confusion, restlessness, and sloth and torpor. And in order to get any kind of leverage on the hindrances, we have to have the first two things in place. So it's really difficult to try and work with the hindrances if our integrity is all over the shop. So if you rip somebody to shreds, it's going to be not a kind of easy way to sit down and feel comfortable with the kind of level of ill will that you've got in your own mind, you know. Or if you've hurt somebody physically, you know, then that is not going to be uh, a way to rectify the, the feelings that give rise to that. So that we need to have the integrity in place as a way of supporting the mind states that give rise to it, right? And obviously it's not like you do one and it's entirely finished and then you do the other. They're sequential. And so all of us make mistakes, we lose it, you know. That's, that's not natural, you know. But what's important is, is to work with what we have in a way where we're moving from um, coarse to more subtle to more refined. And then that gives us the support to work with what we're dealing with rather than try and dive in the deep end and try and do all the subtle stuff without having the coarse things attended to on any level. So when we look at the cause instructions was to know what's going on in our mind and on that level it's very clear he doesn't make any difference between a mind that's filled with lust and a mind that's filled with loving kindness or generosity. From the perspective of knowing what's going on in your mind, they're both equal. But from the perspective of what gives rise to positive thought or to action, they're not at all equal. Okay? So we use the third foundation of mindfulness, which is really important, to be able to give us permission to know what we're feeling. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness, what we're using, is instructions on how to work with some of this stuff in order to bring it into balance. Not to go back to the old habit of slamming ourselves and shaming ourselves and belittling ourselves and criticizing ourselves because of what we're feeling, but in the wise way of understanding that we've got stuff that's going on that is um, you know, a few quarts low then what we can do is we can bring other tools into our thinking process to support how to bring this stuff into balance. So, you know, from my perspective, meditation really has two fundamental components to it. One is bringing things into balance, understanding the conditions that we're working with and bringing them into balance. And the other is a kind of understanding the, uh, the nature of what it is and being able to move back and forth between the objects of mind and the mind that knows them. So there's mind, and then there's the objects of mind. And we get caught out all the time by the objects of our mind. We are with them. We want to collect good ones and get rid of bad ones. We get really upset when the things that we experience are not what we want to be experiencing. 
And there's an understanding about how that happens, and there's certainly an importance of learning how to bring balance into what it is that we're experiencing, because we don't have any capacity to uh, really feel a deep sense of ease if, you know, our minds are totally obsessed with anger, or we're just absolutely stuck on, you know, something that we want, we can't let go, you know. So if we're looping, or, you know, waking up in the morning feeling anxious, and you feel anxious the whole day, it's like, you know, there's no ground to work with some of these other things. So. It's not as if to say that the contents of what we're experiencing have no value. It is. So the fourth foundation of mindfulness is about bringing the tools, a variety of tools, into how do we work with some of this stuff, okay? So when we're looking at anger or ill will or irritation or aversion or not wanting, you know, all of the expressions of that, you know, that generally expression is like, Get, get out of here, you know, just out of my space. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I don't want to know. And the instruction to do with that is to relate to it in terms of kindness. Okay, so we're not relating to the thing that we don't want with kindness. We're relating to another aspect of the same thing that we can feel some sense of affinity towards. So let's say somebody does something nasty. They say something about you that's completely untrue, deliberately, and the result of that is, is, is that, you know, some of the people that you're really close to don't trust you, okay? It's nasty, right? So initially, our feeling is, is just like, get rid of him, get rid of her, get rid of what they said, get rid of that, okay? And our mind goes into pushing it away. So when we're relating in terms of metta, we don't take this pink marshmallow goo and spread it over reality. We're not trying to convert something that's negative into positive with something that's false and fake. What we're wanting to do is to recognize, all right, this person, whatever they said, they're a person. They're going to care for somebody or someone. Maybe they've got a dog that they really like. Okay? Maybe they've got plants that are just flourishing. All right? So we don't take a pink marshmallow goo and spread it on top of them and say everything is fine about them and nothing happened that was wrong. That's false. We can't do things like that. But rather than focus on how horrible what they've just said is and how nasty they must be to have done that, we deliberately shift our focus to something that's positive and kind that we can feel about them and focus on that until some of the heat cools out in our system, and then we can look at it in a little bit more objective way. When we're working with desire, um, you know, for many people, sexual desire is very activating, it's very compelling, and when mind is kind of grabbed onto that, it's like, it's really strong, you know what that does and how one's perceptions and the whole field of one's attention is actually hooked in. And so, you know, in the in the, the classical way of working with it, you know, the instructions are to look at what is unbeautiful. Okay? So the instructions that were given to celibates, because celibates also have to deal with all this stuff, is to contemplate the actual physical nature of the body, to look at the unbeautiful nature of the body. So that when you are feeling sexual desire, you can contemplate, you know, that actually a human body is made out of all kinds of stuff that's sort of rather less than attractive, okay? And 
Classically, this is useful when libidinal objects are triggered by vision. Okay? There are people for whom this is not the case. The desire to have sex or the desire to be intimate sexually with another is not triggered visually. It's triggered by an emotional connection, wanting to be close. Okay? So if you take apart a body, when what is actually happening is, is that you're actually wanting emotional closeness, can do that until the cows come home. It's never going to help because you're using a remedy for something for which it is actually not a useful uh, medicine. So in that case, what's needed is to begin to look at the unbeautiful nature of emotional closeness. And what that would be is the fact that it doesn't last. It's transitory. It actually is not something that you can rely on. You can have it for a while. It's there when all the conditions are right. When the conditions are not right, it goes away. Okay. So this is not a way to slam sexuality. It's not a way to slam sexual desire. It's not a way to slam ourselves for all these feelings that happen. But just in order to get some balance and perspective on it when it's out of balance. So, you know, and that can happen in a million different ways. You know, you can be in a committed partnership and all of a sudden somebody else catches your attention. It's like you don't want to go that way, you know, because you want to honor the commitment that you're in. Okay. So it's not a slam about sexual desire. It's just like, well, if I know if I do this, there's going to be chaos that's going to follow. <laughs> and I don't want the chaos, so how do I deal with all these feelings, you know? So with desire, whether it's sexual desire or whether it's ever kind of any kind of other desire, you know, one of the things which is really helpful is sense restraint. So, all right, so let's say you have a thing for fresh-smelled coffee, fresh ground coffee. And you know, if you smell coffee, it's like you have very little capacity to make a choice. All of a sudden, you're in the coffee shop, you're buying the coffee. It's like there's very little, there's, once you smell, it's like you're in the shop, you've bought the coffee. There's very little discernment that happens. Or... You know, you have a particular thing about chocolate chip cookies, and there's a chocolate chip cookie store or a place where they cook them, and you smell it, and it's like, you know, you can't help yourself. So in a situation like that, where there's something that's activating and there's the desire to have and there's very little discernment, sense restraint, so avoid going down the street where the coffee is being brewed or the cookies are being cooked, you know. So that you're not having to deal with your system being activated and pulled out. Now, let me go back to this thing about the sexual desire of it, because there's something in there that's really important for all of us to get, which is, is that our modern-day people have stuff in us that somehow psychologically frames slightly differently than the way it was at the time of Buddha. So... We do identify with our bodies. That's not unique to modern people, all right? But what we also do is we hate ourselves. So we identify in a positive way, and we oscillate that with identifying with ourselves in a negative way. And we flip, okay? And I have never seen this described in any of the descriptions I have read at the time of the Buddha. People do that, but they oscillate back and forth between over-identifying ourselves and thinking that we are our bodies and hating ourselves and hating our bodies, okay? So the classical instructions that we're given were not given for us to do this. We flip. So as we do this, we have to actually bring remedies in that counterbalance our tendencies. So for me, one of the things with this kind of looking at the nature of the body that's really helpful is a way of cooling down the 
desire components that can arise if actually there's some something that is connected to visual being visually stimulated is to bring kindness into looking at what our bodies are actually made of. So rather than look at it under a microscope, you know, where we're just seeing blood and flesh and bones and guts and organs and things like that, we bring kindness into that exploration where we actually bring kindness into our own body. And that, to me, is a way of helping with this kind of oscillating flip that goes back and forth between loving and hating, loving and hating, loving and hating. When there's restlessness, you know, or anxiety, Sometimes what's helpful with anxiety is to put your attention where you feel confident. Sometimes with restlessness or with doubt, the same, it's helpful to put your attention where you feel confident. Now, again, we have all kinds of different things to deal with in our modern world that I don't know was present in the same kind of concentration And we can experience anxiety without having a particular cause, you know? It can just be that there's just a whole bunch of stuff that's gone down, and the combination of it is is just that we wake up in the morning and just we feel incredibly anxious, okay? There's no particular reason for it. It's not like there's one thing that we're worried about, but there's just a whole bunch of stuff we don't know the answers to, and the result is, is that we wake up and we feel ungrounded and we feel anxious. And so, you know, when a situation like that is going on, it's just really important to, it's really important to just put our attention where we feel comfortable, where we feel confident, what we know is true. Now, doubt is also something that we can experience. And, you know, it was really a fascinating exploration or inquiry for me because, you know, the story of the Buddha is, is, is that You know, the night that he was sitting under the Bodhi tree, he made this ferocious determination that he was going to stay there until his mind opened up. Otherwise, he would stay until he he died. You know, he was like, you know, I'm done. This is either happening or I'm done. (laughs) So he stayed there with this phenomenal resolve. And the first thing that came to him were the forces of, of anger and then the forces of desire and then the forces of doubt. And so, you know, the forces of doubt were like, you know, who do you think you are to be enlightened? You know? So even for somebody like the Buddha, you know, this is something that he had to experience before his mind could open up to actually know what the truth was. But I wonder how many of us wake up in the morning and our doubt is, do I have the, what gives me the right to be enlightened? You know? I think for many of us, you know, our doubt is, do I have the right to exist? Or do I have the right to be here? Or is it okay for me to be myself? Or is it, I mean, our doubts are not at the level of complete transcendence, but more about who we are as people in the world around us, you know? And yet, you know what the Buddha did was, you know, he touched this, the, the mudra. When you see the Buddhas touching the earth, what he did was he asked the the the, the, the the goddess of the earth to bear witness to all of his accumulated goodness and what he'd done. 
So he didn't have to fight with doubt. You know, he didn't have to go into battle. He didn't have to prove himself. He just, what he needed to do was to invoke that which witnessed everything that he had done which had been positive. Okay? Now, for us, this ties us back to what I was starting about in the first place. This is that we actually need to have connection to our own goodness in order to practice. We need to actually cultivate generosity as a force in our life that we can then rely on. Because when we're up against the wall with some of the stuff that comes up in meditation, and I can assure you, we will be. <laughs> we need leverage to work with that. And one of the leverages that's really important to cultivate is connecting with our own goodness. That actually, fundamentally, our intention is to do good, to not harm. And that there are many actions where this is something that we can experience or can express or can show. Okay. So doubt has this multifaceted components to it. And uh, is your head okay? Yeah. And so, you know, what's needed is to have some level of sophistication in how we deal with it. And then another one is sleepiness. Okay, so when we're feeling dull or when we're feeling sleepy and our mind is sinking, you know, many people think, well, you know, if you're like that, if you're sitting, you should just stay sitting. Well, not necessarily so. You know, if you're sitting and you're falling asleep, maybe what's good is to stand up, or maybe what's good is to open your eyes, or maybe what's good is to put your hands over your head and take a couple of deep breaths, or to pull your ears, really pull them hard so that you stimulate all the meridians in them, or... Sometimes what's good is rather than try and keep the attention focused on something subtle like the breath, is to breathe, and at every breath you touch your fingers so that there's more contact that you experience, you know. So that when you're falling asleep with meditation, you don't just assume that sitting through it is the best way. One begins to develop tools and skills to be able to work with it so that there's some balance. Now, with sleepiness, there are going to be, uh, you know, many different reasons why you're sleeping. And so the kinds of things that we do in order to rectify it are going to be partially related to the, what are the causes of the sleepiness in the first place. So if you're sleepy because you're sick, then it's not helpful for you to force yourself to stay upright. It might be more helpful for you just to rest. If you're sleepy because you've had too much to eat, then take note of that because then it will make a difference when you eat the next time or when the time you eat and when the time you're meditating, okay? If you're sleepy because there's something that's bubbling up inside of you which is actually quite difficult, you know, it's almost like, you know, for my system, it's like it creates a blister around my, my you know, if there's something that's emerging into conscious awareness that is really difficult for me to, to face, my system will become very, very sleepy for a while until the kind of resources gather to be able to face it. It doesn't help to push. It doesn't help to resist. It doesn't help to be unkind. What helps is just to trust the process. So when I get a sense that that's what's going on, if I need to sleep a gazillion hours a day, I sleep a gazillion hours a day. And I trust that when I finish sleeping, the conditions will come together. I know what it is that I need to deal with. So sleepiness has many different causes, and so understanding where they're coming from gives us this skillfulness and the sophistication to be able to respond to it all in a kind of different way. Now, when we have 
the hindrances somewhat at bay, okay? That gives us the clarity to be able to focus on the aggregates. So when our minds are kind of totally consumed with desire or ill will or sleepiness or doubt or restlessness, you know, any of these things are so consuming that we don't have the capacity or the concentration or the clarity to focus our minds on some of the other things that are going on. But when our minds have have created some foundation so that this, there isn't the hindrances which are tearing ourselves apart, then what we can do is we can focus on the aggregates. Now, the aggregates look at what it is to be a human being in a different way than we normally are used to looking at. So normally we're looking at, this is me, okay? I am this, this is me, this is who I am. But the aggregates breaks up our human experience in terms of form. So yes, there's the body, and I can feel my body, I can see my body, I can sense my body, okay? And then there's feelings. The feelings is not the emotions that we normally use the word feeling to describe. Feeling in this context is the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, all right? So if you're into coffee and you smell coffee, it'll be a pleasant feeling. If you're into chocolate chip cookies and you smell chocolate chip cookies, it'll be a pleasant feeling. If um, you don't like Mexican food and you smell Mexican food, it'll be an unpleasant feeling. If you're into fancy computers and you see a fancy computer, it'll be a pleasant feeling. You know, if you're into fancy cars, I saw a fancy cars, I don't know what it was, a, something, probably I don't even know the name for. And I thought, you know, wow, that's a fancy car. You know, so if your mind grabs hold of fancy cars and spins about, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could have that? If you bring your attention back to, oh, that's a pleasant feeling, it's much less complicated. And when we're dealing with much less complicated things, it's a lot easier to frame what's going on. So there's form, there's feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. There's perception which is like blue, red, green, you know, the shape, this is tall, okay? And then there's sankara or formations or concocted things in relationship to that. So I see this, it's clear, it's tall, it's got a shape, it's cylindrical, okay? And the formations is, is that this is a glass of water, all right? It's the identification, the associations with the way that I'm used to relating to that, all right? Now, if I turned it upside down, it could be a stand. If I used it on its side, it could be a rolling pin. Okay? So the sankara related to this is not inherent in this. The sankara is in my relationship to how I'm used to relating to it. Okay? But sankara is something that grabs our attention and we think it's absolutely true. And it's only partially true. It is true that this is a glass. But it's that's the only thing that it is. So when we get used to relating to our experience with all of these different things, so there's body, there's feeling, there's perception, there's sankara, and there's consciousness, okay? We can see that the sum total of who we are and what we are experiencing is all of these things arising in the moment and ceasing in the moment, arising in the moment and ceasing in the moment. We can't look at any place and find where I am, okay? I'm a kind of matrix, a constellation, 
you know, as something that's arising and then ceasing, arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing. So I have a thought, I am good. That's a thought that arises. It's there for a while. It ceases. I can have a thought. I'm useless. That's a thought. It arises for a while, and then it ceases. It's not who I am. So when we begin to see how when our minds are not consumed with hindrances, then we have the capacity to focus on the aggregates. The aggregates give us quite a leverage in terms of not getting caught out in terms of where we normally identify. Yes, it's a body. Yes, it's a feeling. Yes, it's a sensation. Yes, there can be liking and not liking. We can know all of these things, but they don't have to be what we identify ourselves to be. When we're not identifying, then there's much more freedom. There's much more peace. We can work with what we're dealing with in a way that's really skillful, but we're not defending it. We're not frightened because it's there. There's just much more capacity to be receptive and responsive in a way that feels congruent with our values. You know? Because otherwise, you know, we think of ourselves, we want to be free, independent beings. But we're highly conditioned. And we're not at all free until we've actually resolved some of that conditioning. So, you know, in a situation like a master, a master who really understands who they are, has gone beyond fear completely. You know, there's this amazing story. I don't know whether it's true or it's just a dumb story of a of a, a warmongering general was going through lands and conquering them, pillaging and burning and raping and terrible things. And there was a horrible reputation that he had. And so, you know, before he came anywhere, people would flee because he was brutal merciless, ruthless, and everyone would just disappear. So he came through this area, and in this area was a very large monastery, and the monks knew that he was coming and took off for the mountains. And the master stayed behind. And the general came into the monastery and found this little wizened old man and came right up to him, snarly and nasty, and said, Don't you know who I am? I can run through you a thousand times without even batting my eye. And the master said, And yes, I, sir, can be run through a thousand times without batting my eye. So you can't fake that. You can't do that as a good idea. You know? You have to actually know who you are and what you are made out of to be able to be confronted with that kind of horrifying prospect and not shake because you know ultimately who you are is not your body, not your feelings, not your perceptions, not the formations that you have about them, not your consciousness. When you know that, not as an idea, but as a direct realization, when you really get it, there's a kind of freedom that's absolutely unshakable. You know, it doesn't matter what kind of shit comes down. It's like it does not matter. There's something in you that is actually grounded and clear. Now, I wanted to read this last thing. Ajahn Lee Damodara was a quite remarkable forest meditation master. 
And this comes from his book, The Handbook for the Relief of Suffering, and it's the essay number three. It's called The Buddhist Way. Thus we have sankharas on the level of the world and sankharas on the level of dharma. The Buddha taught that all of these sankharas are undependable, fleeting, and unstable. They appear, remain for a moment, and then disband. Then they appear again, going around in circles. This is inconstancy and stress. Whether they're good or bad, all sankharas have to behave in this way. We can't force them to obey our wishes. Thus the Buddha taught that they're not self. Once we've developed precise powers of discernment, we'll be able gradually to loosen our attachment to these sankharas. And once we've stabilized our minds to the point of right concentration, clear cognitive skill will arise within us. We'll clearly see the truth of sankharas on the level of the world and on the level of dhamma, and we will shed them from our hearts. Our hearts will then gain release from all sankharas and attain the noblest happiness as taught by the Buddha, independent of all physical and mental objects. Although this discussion of these two topics has been brief, it can comprehend all aspects of the Buddha's teachings. To summarize, heedfulness, watchfulness, non-complacency, don't place your trust in any of these sankharas. Try to develop within yourself whatever virtues should be acquired and attained. That's what it means not to be heedless. So let's stop here. Have a cup of tea.